Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. In this, the second part of our series on Mark Twain and the Indians, hosted and co-produced by Mika Tiram Nigren, Mika talks to the author of that landmark work, Carrie Driscoll. Before handing things over to Mika, I'd like to briefly update you on other CMTS programming. We recently completed our Summer Park Church lecture series, and all three lectures are now available on our YouTube channel or at marktwainstudies.com. If you listened to the last episode, you heard Anne Ryan describe Mark Twain as foremost an idea, one that is shaped as much by the apparatuses of American mythmaking as by the man himself. One of those mythologizers was a mid-century editor of Twain's works named Charles Nieder. Nieder directly debated a Soviet critic, Jan Beresnitsky, about the propaganda associated with Twain in both the U.S. and USSR. That debate was reproduced as a pamphlet called Mark Twain and the Russians. The pamphlet caused a major stir during the Cold War, but has been out of print for several decades. We are very pleased to be able, with the permission of Nieder's daughter, to publish an annotated digital edition of Mark Twain and the Russians, which you can find at marktwainstudies.com backslash Mark Twain and the Russians. In a supplementary series, I'm exploring the appropriation of Twain's work to Cold War propaganda more broadly, the first two installments of that series, on the circumstances surrounding Nieder's pamphlet and the employment of Hal Holbrook as an agent of the U.S. government, have already been published. You can find them at marktwainstudies.com backslash the Twain Doctrine. For more about this episode of the American Vandal podcast, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash Talking Twain. Hi, I'm Mika Turam Nigren, filling in for Matt Siebold as your guest host today on the American Vandal podcast. We've reached part two of our three-part mini-series on Carrie Driscoll's new book, Mark Twain Among the Indians, which has already completely transformed the way scholars all over the country are thinking about and teaching Twain. As a professor emerita of the University of St. Joseph, and a former scholar-in-residence at the Elmira Center for Mark Twain Studies, Carrie Driscoll has never shied away from the more controversial aspects of Mark Twain's literary legacy, including his overwhelmingly negative portrayals of Native Americans. Now, with Mark Twain among the Indians, Carrie has given us a thorough accounting of Mark Twain's often deeply disturbing attitudes toward indigenous peoples. At a moment in our political history, when the Black Lives Matter movement has brought anti-racist pedagogy to the forefront of the American literature classroom, Driscoll's work calls our attention to, quote, 19th century America's other major racial issue, the dispossession and attempted extermination of America's indigenous tribes. For literary scholars of all stripes, Driscoll's work provides a shining example of what cultural studies should be, meticulously researched, extensively documented, an absolutely indispensable resource for anyone interested in questions of nativity. Within the Twain Studies context in particular, however, Driscoll disrupts the traditional redemptive arc that is often applied to Twain's views on race. Instead, she offers us an account of Twain and of white America more broadly that traces the remarkable persistence of racial animus, even in the face of real personal sympathies for the plight of oppressed peoples. By tracing Twain's frequent reversions to the most virulently racist anti-Native rhetoric of his era, Driscoll provides a powerful corrective to our canonical account of Twain one which forces us to grapple with the legacy of Native representation in American literature writ large. We start our conversation today with a discussion of Twain's infamous 1870 essay, The Noble Red Man, a satire of James Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking series that claims that real-life Native Americans are, quote, 
ignoble, base, and treacherous, and hateful in every way. Driscoll says that she was so shocked by the venom in this essay and the excuses that she found Twain scholars making for it that she became, quote, an accidental Twainian to figure out why Twain hated Native people so much. What she found, she says, was not so much a smoking gun as a series of rabbit holes, which show Twain reverting time and time again to anti-Native prejudice, which sets him apart, really, from many of the more progressive thinkers that were surrounding him. Uh, Heads up here at the top, the audio quality to this recording is unfortunately less than perfect, Uh, but I think you'll find the conversation is well worth it. For researchers, Driscoll offers a new approach to archival work that emphasizes the importance of place in shaping cultural thought. For teachers, Driscoll's offers a new approach to student-led scholarship that showcases the importance of paying attention to specific historical language. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Carrie Driscoll. As I'm having conversations about this book, the thing I hear over and over is that this is a landmark book in Twain Studies. People keep using this figure, the most important book in Twain Studies of the last 25 years. Whoa! (laughs) I think what I hear people saying is that they are finding this book very generative, very productive for their own research, their own scholarship, their own teaching. And I was wondering if we could start maybe by asking you to talk about the gestation of this book for you. Well, I'm going to call myself an accidental Twainian because when I was in graduate school, Mark Twain was probably the furthest figure from my mind. My area of specialization was literary modernism, specifically modern American poetry. And along the way, I got interested in Native American literature, but of course it wasn't being taught even at the graduate level back in the 80s. And so when I was a freshly minted PhD, I decided I wanted to develop a course in Native American American literature. And during that research, I stumbled upon the noble red man. And I was really shocked by it. First of all, I hadn't known it existed, kind of the virulence of the rhetoric. It completely flew in the face of my understanding of who Mark Twain was and the kinds of values that he represented. And I just kept thinking, if someone had handed me this sketch anonymously without Mark Twain's name attached to it, I would never have believed he wrote it. This may sound sort of silly as kind of the seed (laughs) that got planted in my mind, but it was such an intellectual stumbling block for me. So just to set some context for the listeners, Noble Red Man, this is his work that he writes, curating the romantic Native American tales of James Fenwar Cooper, the last of the Mohicans, and he writes a literary critique that is nonetheless at the same time overturning the romantic stereotypes of the vanishing Native with a set of equally let's say, rarefied and trench stereotypes that happen to be virulently racist. Yes, yes. And 1870, so it's fairly early on in his career. And so I wondered why, you know, where did this come from? And so I wanted to interrogate that further and look into that sketch and see what I could find out about Twain and his attitudes towards Indians, because I realized I didn't know anything about them. And as I began to look into the noble red man, what I noticed was, first of all, very little had been written about it. And those who had written about it kind of excused it by saying, well, it's not that he's really prejudiced against Native people. He is biased against the romantic representation of them in an earlier generation of writers. I had a hard time buying that. In part, it's true. Certainly, Cooper, one of his favorite targets, 25 years later in Fenimore Cooper's literary offenses, he's still at it. Really hilarious way, you know, if I might add. But that doesn't explain the depth of the venom and the invective in that essay. You know what the comparison reminds me of? 
since this is a comparison that will resonate with you as someone who does modern poetry, when someone like Ezra Pound starts using mm-hmm. the Br'er Rabbit monikers in, right. in letters, and it's just because, just because they want the imaginative play of breaking free of the strictures of formalized language. Mm-hmm. But of course, there are racial connotations to that, and there are Black authors for whom that is not a liberation at all, but a constraint. Right. And it can be both. It can be a literary critique that nonetheless entails real ramifications for the role of both Native peoples and Native representations Mm -hmm. in the canon. So initially, I thought that I would fill this gap by writing an article. And once I began to turn to it in earnest, I realized that the scope of this issue was too big to ever be dealt with in a thorough or responsible way within the space of an academic essay. All right. That one of the things that I learned very early on was the tendency to generalize. Right. Well, you know, this was a misguided prejudice from his years in the West, but he outgrew it. Right. Everyone in the West was prejudiced against Indians. Thinking about Hannibal and his youth in Hannibal, there weren't any Indians in Hannibal when he was growing up. And I just bristled against that. All right. The kind of sweeping, you know, no, no, you know, all of which got him off the hook in a way, right? It had nothing to do with him as an individual, but instead it was just this generic cultural description of a problem. And so then at a certain point, I thought, well, all right, maybe this is a book. And then I had to overcome all kinds of trepidation about jumping ship from the 20th century into the 19th, because quite frankly, I felt like I didn't know practically anything about the 19th century. So I sort of set my myself to learning about it. And what I thought initially was that I would write a very standard work of literary criticism. It would be focused on a series of 10, right? So there would be a chapter on Tom Sawyer and Injun Joe. There would be a chapter on a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, etc., etc. And I started to do that and I was able to glean some insights But what I was really looking for is a kind of smoking gun. I kept thinking there has to be a reason why he felt so strongly about this, you know, particularly when you put it in the context of his broader racial views, right, where he really was progressive in relation to other 19th century writers in many ways. And so I just kept in the back of my mind thinking with almost a single minded purpose, there's got to be a reason if only I dig hard enough, I'm going to be able to find it. And what became increasingly clear to me was that there was no smoking gun. That caused a real moment, I guess, initially of panic. Oh no, you know, (laughs) what have I been wasting my time on? But then it actually turned out to be a kind of boom. It was a great advantage because it opened up the topic and liberated me. And it became a much more interesting inquiry. Instead of looking for some rational explanation, the most obvious one that was tantalizingly in the background was his mother's ancestor, right? You know, being involved with that massacre. This is one of the things I think the book does extraordinarily well is contextualize Twain's cultural attitudes towards indigenous peoples in relationship to the people that he's around. So yes, yes, yes. his mother is telling the story of the Montgomery massacre of her youth, but his brother Orion is having a quite different Absolutely. reaction to it. And yes, in the Nevada territory, he's encountering this journalism that mobilizes an entire rhetoric of denigration towards Native peoples. But then there are activists for Native rights Absolutely. around them that are taking a very different approach. And yeah. speaking of archival work. You know, I do love rabbit holes. And so, you know, I mean, this was just an endless series of fascinating rabbit holes. And so after I abandoned the notion of the smoking gun, it occurred to me that a standard literary criticism was not going to work for what I imagined I wanted to do. The way I needed to reconceptualize it, as I say in the introduction to the book, is that it's both chronological and geographical. 
I wanted to, at all costs, avoid overgeneralization because I thought that that had been a really glaring flaw in the earlier work that I'd seen on this topic. So I thought, well, if I focus in on a series of places and then try as best I can to understand the cultural milieu of those places and what kind of attitudes was Sam Clemens almost by osmosis internalizing, right, from those places. And that turned out to be the key for me. So, for example, I had written about a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court and that very odd native imagery that keeps cropping up, you know, the Knights of the Round Table are just a bunch of polished up Comanches. And one day I asked myself this question. Well, he was living in Hartford when he was writing that. The Colt Firearms Factory, you know, is, of course, important in terms of Hank Morgan's place of work. And I just asked myself a question, well, what was happening with Native rights in Hartford, not in Connecticut, in Hartford, right, in the 1880s? I struck gold archivally, you know, on any number of occasions, and it was all just intuitive and luck. So when I first embarked on that line of questioning, I was at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Research Center and I found this really short note that Clemens had written to a woman named Sarah Kinney. I had no idea who she was. I have a really old fashioned card catalog, I think typed by volunteers in the 1930s at that archive. And every single card has a kind of keynote on the top, right? A phrase from the letter. And up at the top, it said, the engine has lost a friend. And I was like, oh, I want to see that one. (laughs) And then, wow, I mean, it just sort of started to unravel there. The president of the Connecticut Indian Association and then who belonged. These women kept meticulous records of membership logs. They were absolutely geniuses at harnessing the power of the press and getting people to print editorials about... And and these women are the women of the Connecticut... The Connecticut Indian, Indian Association. And then, you know, I started to look at the membership rosters and noticed that a lot of Mark Twain's friends and neighbors were in it. And I thought, well, isn't that odd? You know, there's this kind of glaring omission. And so once I began to examine the Connecticut Yankee in relation to the Connecticut Indian Association, everything just kind of opened up for me. I mean, that makes so much sense. And the way you're describing it, the thing I like about this methodology is that it sounds almost at first when you describe it this way, that it is going to be a kind of biographical study that we're looking for Mark Twain's personal racial animus and what he felt in his soul. That's not at all what you're doing. It's it's really a discourse analysis. It's about the cultures of letters, but hyper-localized because we know Twain is not a great reader. Um, Just what he happened to come across in those circles, how it informed what he wrote. And the other thing that's nice about this approach is that if we had had an indictment on the subject of Native issues, we need to cancel Twain. It would become this kind of dichotomy, right? Mm-hmm. We embrace him when it comes to African-American rights. We lambast him when it comes to Native American rights. And this is the duality of Twain, this kind of Janus-faced figure. Mm-hmm. Instead, what you're saying is it's a lot more complicated. Yes. There were so many surprising discoveries. So I thought at first I would have a chapter on Nevada. And that, of course, morphed into two because I just found so much information. And I took a research trip out to the state archives in Carson City. And basically what I wanted to look at was Orion Clemens's correspondence in his role as the secretary right to the territorial governor. And I really did not know what I would find. And I was stunned to find these very heartfelt and poignant moving letters that Orion had written whenever James Nye left the territory. Orion became acting governor. And in that role, he inherited Nye's role as ex officio superintendent of Indian affairs. And so a lot of issues came across his desk in terms of things that were happening with the Paiute and the Washoe, right? And you see these letters, which are just extraordinary documents that no one ever thought to look at before in the context of Mark Twain. 
I do like the phrase you use, literary archaeology, mm. because you are very specifically hyper-focalizing on trajectories of language mm-hmm. and of rhetorical transference and the ways these cultures of letters influence the specific words he uses. Yes. Which brings us back to, again, not Mark Twain the person, but Mark Twain, the figure in the American literary canon and yes. the legacy that leaves for our literature. Yes. You know, I'd known the name Dan DeQuill. I can't say that I had read a lot of DeQuill's work. So tell the listeners who Dan DeQuill is. So Dan DeQuill is another writer on the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise. So he is a colleague of Mark Twain's, a really sort of seminal figure for Clemens. Henry Nash Smith says he is the mentor who taught Clemens about Comstock journalism. He was a bit older and more experienced. So Clemens looked up to him. At one point, they were roommates, right, for a number of months. And And DeQuill spent most of his life in the West, right? So long after Clemens came East, he remained in Nevada after the boom of the Comstock Lode era. And in 1876, he publishes, and actually through the American Publishing Company, so Twain himself pulled strings in order to make that happen, he published a history of the discovery of the Comstock Lode and kind of a social history of what was going on in that community. And there's quite a bit of information about his relationship to the local Native community. Turns out he was a fluent speaker of Paiute. Right. He was a friend of Chief Winnemucca. So DeQuill's attitudes about Native peoples, it's like a night and day contrast to Samuel Clemens. You know, it's just sort of the intimacy of that friendship. And yet he resisted listening to or internalizing DeQuill's much more liberal, favorable views of natives as human beings. He understood the toll of settler colonialism. He saw the impoverishment not as a sign of weakness or inferiority, but something that had been thrust upon them by historical circumstances. And what just astonishes me about that Nevada territory experience is how foreclosed his thinking was. Here's his brother, right, who I thought, well, if there is kind of going back to this smoking gun notion, well, if there is someone causing him to think negatively about Indians, it's certainly not Orion, right? Plenty of evidence of that. My favorite find in this entire book is Orion's poem. Oh, I know uh, it. The, the, red, the Red Man Redeemed? Is that yes, yeah. In the future, I want to teach the noble red man and this poem side by side. Mm-hmm. I think it would be such mm-hmm. an interesting way to get into the subject. Yes, yes. But then, you know, once I began to broaden out the circle a little bit, Warren Wasson, right? Very first letter signed as Mark Twain, he talks about Warren Wasson singing at a party. And so I was like, well, who's that, right? You know, well, an Indian agent. The inner circle of territorial political elite that he has access to because of Orion, right? Because he's Orion's brother. These people have way more progressive views about Indians. I mean, it's interesting that he does really grasp the absurdities in life on the Mississippi, he calls it the colossal ironies of imperialist expansion, Mm. the decimation of settler colonialism on indigenous peoples. He grasps that even in his early travel writing, and certainly by the time he's writing something like Following the Creator, the thrust, the target, the punchline is the assumption that you can steal land wholesale and get away with it. Mm -hmm. And yet that does not lead him into any kind of reassessment of his animosity towards indigenous peoples in the U.S. The parody continues to cut both ways. He's making fun of both groups as if the group responsible for the degradation and the group suffering the legacy of that today are equally, you can ridicule both equally. Something that I really struggled with, why do I think that this subject has been ignored? Why, with Mark Twain's kind of centrality in the American cultural imagination, 
we need Mark Twain to be the champion of the underdog, the voice that defends the oppressed. And because his writings about American Indians don't fit into that pattern, right? But it's a kind of weird discordant note in what is otherwise this very progressive range of work. So I was hoping that given the length of Twain's career after the watershed of the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890, that I would see a change. Why target Native peoples after 1890? They're not a threat politically at all after that. But there's 20 years after Wounded Knee, and he never either expresses regret for, say, Injun Joe. As you illustrate, he continues to joke about it. Yeah. He found this amazing letter from Leighton's where he's like, I don't know how I killed him off, but I did it one way or another. Right, right. We see from these unpublished manuscripts that he did indeed recognize the wrong that had been imposed on American Indians. Why didn't he publish that stuff? I thought long and hard about it, and I never came up with an adequate answer. There was a certain kind of refusal to see. Well, actually, the way you phrase it now, I'm seeing a very interesting parallel between the willing blindness in Twain's studies, the desire to lionize Twain as this iconic humanist, and the blindness within Twain himself of being unwilling to reassess or recalibrate his views on Native peoples at any point in his life. So I guess my question would be, there was a point in the teaching of the American canon where we needed Twain to be the emblem of what was good about America. That's right. That we were on a trajectory towards almost inevitable inclusivity. Yes. That we were always going to be folding more and more people. And maybe, what do we need right now in our racial climate? What does teaching Twain this way offer us now? Well, what... I personally learned from doing this research is that he is a more complicated figure than I ever had realized before I undertook writing the book. But that in that complication, those unresolved, maddening contradictions, that he was enriched as both a human being and a writer. I think that I'm a a little bit afraid this will sound obnoxious, but part of what motivated me to write the book was as a kind of corrective to this myth of, of, you know, Mark Twain, the egalitarian, progressive, you know, liberal. I think you should you should embrace that, like (laughs) knock him off the pedestal, do the most you can. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that if we teach Mark Twain realistically and say, yes, you know, he was born into a slave holding family in a slaveholding state, but married someone with a strong abolitionist ties and really began to unlearn some of that early bias. That's a wonderful story, but it's not the whole story. What I found that was both fascinating and really frustrating in the course of writing the book was that I would see an epiphany, that wonderful letter, 1886 to Grover Cleveland, right, where he denounces the bounty on Apache scalps as scoundrelism. He's writing to the president of the United States. He's just read an editorial in the Hartford Current that morning, placed there, by the way, by the women of the Connecticut Indian Association. Even though he doesn't join their group, despite their best attempts to sort of bring him in, he's nonetheless being influenced by some of the material that they are putting into public local circulation. You have that in 1886. And then you have the really terribly derogatory representations of Indians in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. If you're focusing on chronology and the notion of a linear trajectory, it just doesn't work. Do you talk about this this dialectic of desire and repulsion that at times he wants to play Indian, of course, Tom and Huck very famously Mm -hmm. play at being Native, and he represents himself pretty consistently, and you find these amazing political cartoons (laughs) of the ways he himself are represented when he goes to England, that he embraces this idea that I'm the one carrying the tomahawk. 
at the same time, this almost visceral bodily somatic disgust yes. for the actual presence of Native peoples, the continuous focus on dirt, dirt and vermin. Do you think tracing where he was located as he was cycling through these different kinds of pronouncements helps elucidate what was going on? For me, it did. In the end, I don't want to say I'm at a loss to explain his attitudes because I certainly spent close to 400 pages uh, trying to, to explicate that. But it was something that ultimately he could not wrap his head around the fact that these were human beings worthy of respect, worthy of inclusion. He would have these momentary expressions of sympathy, and then there would be this kind of regression. And I saw that pattern over and over. I mean, this is what fascinates me, like, especially at a moment, and this is a conversation happening in Twain studies right now. And I know you're an accidental Twainian. I, too, would consider myself an accidental Twainian. But for people who have dedicated their lives to Twain studies, they're finding themselves at a real impasse of people outside that field saying Twain has occupied so much time and space in the racial discourse. It is not a helpful narrative right now. This idea that we've always already been on the path toward redemption um, that doesn't explain our current political climate. Yes. Maybe this version of Twain you're giving us takes us away from questions of what did Twain think and believe into questions of what white Americans can believe mm-hmm. and what is the pattern of racialization in this country that doesn't disappear. What avenues do you see for the ways this could reinvigorate Twain's studies as a field and also our teaching of Twain in the classroom? Well, I would hope it would pretty dramatically change our teaching of Twain, just because if you just look at, say, Huck Finn and the uses of satire as a way to critique racism, that now, I think, becomes kind of limited, at least to my mind, unsatisfactory, because it's only one facet of a much larger, more complex picture at the risk of sounding very egotistical, one of the things that I'm most proud of about the book is how much new information I was able to unearth. I'm just going to lift you up and say, this is not Carrie tooting her own horn. This is, again, everyone who has read this book has been amazed at the breadth of the historical archive that you've been able to amass. That's wonderful. Thank you. And I really, I appreciate your, your sharing that. There's so much that is new. Petrified man, right? Near Gravelly Ford. I am a dyed-in-the-wool New Englander. And so that always just sounded like a quaint and colorful name to me. And then one day I thought, you know, I should look at a map of Nevada. And there it is. It's a real place. And then I began to look at, well, okay, what's the significance geographically of this place? Just for context, this is a little squib, a little tiny hoax that Twain publishes in newspapers about a petrified man in the territories, a man who turns to fossilized stone. Yes. 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 You know, 1862. It's very, very early. Well, as it turns out, it was on an immigrant trail route. It was also protected in its remoteness and the site of any number of massacres. So one of the things that I found most fruitful is that Mark Twain loved to read newspapers. He subscribed to multiple newspapers at his home in Hartford. So not only was he reading a number of local newspapers, but he was also reading the Herald, the Times, the New York Sun, etc. So he was incredibly well-informed about current events. A lot of what I was able to glean from just really doing a deep dive into those local 19th century newspapers was the language in which Native attacks and depredations were being discussed. And that proved very helpful to me in not just contextualizing, but understanding why he was saying what he was saying. If we pull in a work like Petrified Man or The Noble Red Man, what we see is a much more nuanced picture of Samuel Clemens as a thinker, someone who is living in a particular historical moment and responding to that moment. 
this might be getting a little into the weeds, but could you imagine a kind of classroom exercise where you take these archival materials, literal newspaper clippings, pass them around in the class, and ask students to be attentive to patterns of language basically asking them to do the kind of work you do in this book as an exercise in class. Oh, I think that would be fabulous. I absolutely do. In part, that's why I've reprinted so much of that archival information in the book, you know, so that could be possible without having to go to the microfilm. You've done it all for us. (laughs) Well, aw shucks. Thank you, Mika. (laughs) We've talked about some of the findings in the book. I know you didn't find your smoking gun moment, but could you tell us a story about something you found that just really surprised you or just felt like hitting a golden treasure? Yes. In addition to looking very, very closely at 19th century newspapers in the communities where Sam Clements was living, I also was looking at the marginalia. He was a very interactive reader. He's the kind of person where you probably wouldn't want to loan him a book because, you know, he just covered his books. Sometimes really hilarious, snarky comments. He would argue with the author and make fun of him, but they're very insightful in terms of tapping into the way the man's mind worked. Those marginalia, particularly in Francis Parkman's The Jesuits in North America, That was really a watershed moment for me because I'd known that he had Richard Irving Dodge's Our Wild Indians, which has a chapter on Indian religion. And once I saw this marginalia, things really started to coalesce for me. Examining the marginalia in his private library to the extent that I was able to access those books was really rewarding. The other thing is using Mark Twain's notebooks. As a writer, he always had a small notebook with him. And they're often very random. You know, they've been published up through the early 1890s, but they have the whole collection of them out at the Mark Twain papers. And when I was writing the sections on following the equator, those notebooks were absolutely transformative for me. For example, he's almost constantly in motion when he's not bedridden with his carbuncles as he's traveling through Australia and New Zealand. But because he's actually going into the outback, he leaves Livy and Clara at the closest big town. And then he heads out with his agent, Carlisle Smythe, on trains. And there's this one very curious kind of mystifying passage in the notebook about what a pity, W-A-P-I-T-I, all right? And he's eavesdropping actually on some Maori, right? And so I thought, well, what's up with that, right? You know, and New Zealand has done a fabulous job of digitizing their 19th century newspapers. And so there I am, half a world away, all right, going through these newspapers during the months that he is in New Zealand. And what do I come across? But those very words, it's a long phrase used in an advertisement that was a kind of hoax for a brand of cigarettes. So he's reading on the train, another newspaper. He's interested in the musicality of the Maori tongue and puts these two things together. And so, I mean, that for me was like a real aha moment. Just to take a beat on that, the thing that is so fascinating about it is that we know that for Twain, there is nothing that motivates him to write more than hearing an oral phrase, whether it's the language of a child, the mm-hmm. accent of a person of color, the kind of rough and ready Western speak, yes. where there's some kind of way of using language that he hasn't heard before. Mm-hmm. And being able to incorporate that mimic, mirror, embellish, exaggerate. When you see the moments in his work where he is the most, let's not say empathetic towards natives, but depicting them as something more than the butt of his punchline, mm-hmm. it is because he's interested in their language. That's use. right. Yeah. 
what a pity is one moment. Yep. Of course, and, uh, complicated, but it is not coming from Maori people. It's no. coming from a newspaper advertisement that is simplifying and parroting them. Exactly. Exactly. But it's making him more open to hearing actual Maori speech. The other moment that, again, was really remarkable for me was when I was researching the chapter on the Noble Red Man. And he would have been living in Buffalo, part owner and contributor to the Buffalo Express newspaper. And I thought, well, hmm, why don't I take a look at those issues of the Express around the time of the publication of this sketch? Because, I mean, that one was so mystifying to me because it was not written during a time of war. It was not written in response to a particularly horrific massacre. It occurs in the context of Ulysses Grant's peace policy, where they're sending Quakers out to the reservations. It's a relatively progressive moment in terms of Native white relations in the latter half of the 19th century. So I just kept thinking, why? Why, why, why? And the end of that sketch says, by Dr. Kimes, excellent book. And then there is a, you know, a series of sentences that are actually italicized in the sketch. And it is a description of Indian atrocities. And so I dutifully went to the library and found De Beneville Randolph Kimes, Sheridan's Troopers on the Western Border, and read that from cover to cover. And that quote's not in there. So I had this hypothesis that it was a reaction to the glowing idealized depictions of two leaders of the Sioux delegation to Washington, D.C. in June of 1870, Red Cloud and Spotted Tail. But I didn't have really any specific evidence of that. And so I'm looking at the national coverage of how these chiefs were being portrayed. And then I thought, well, let me look more locally where he's living in Buffalo to his own newspaper. And sure enough, I found a new books column and Sheridan's Troopers on the Western Border is one of the books that is reviewed. Those very sentences are in the review. And this isn't a smoking gun, but it came pretty close. Mark Twain says in Dr. Kime's excellent book, well, De Beneville Randolph Kime was not a doctor. He was not a physician. He was a journalist. And in this book review, Kime is called Dr. Kime. So it was a mistake mm. on the part of the reviewer. Yeah. But what yeah. Clemens does, I mean, clearly he had that review at hand on his desk when he was writing The Noble Red Man and just lifts it up, cuts a few sentences, you know, verbatim, sticks them into his sketch. And what was the best thing about making that discovery was how this book review begins. It says, the recent visit of Red Cloud and Spotted Tail to the nation's capital has led us to think about Native peoples in a very positive way. And I was like, aha, <laughs> I was right. I was right. That's amazing. Just to give us a chance to dig into the findings of this book, I wanted to ask you about the chapter on Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer among the Indians, mm -hmm. where you find in the kind of process you're talking about in digging into the marginalia, and Twain's research is always a bit spotty, a bit shoddy. He's not like you. <laughs> but the idea he had in this book of wanting Huck to, quote unquote, convert to Native spirituality and one, it really changes our understanding of Huck yeah. in important ways. But two, the valence of that, the way it's presented in the book is as a moment of admiration, a moment of sympathy. But of course, his understanding of Native spiritual traditions is, again, secondhand yep. from someone who is vastly oversimplifying. So this is a very facile, a very unrepresentative notion yep. of what Native spirituality is. Yep. Would that have been a boon for Native representation or would it have been itself a kind of erasure? 
Well, I don't know that it would necessarily have been a boon, but given the centrality of Huck Finn in our literary canon up until very recently, it really could have radically revised our understanding, not only of Huck, but maybe of what America is. That here you have this sort of white trash kid, neglected, abused, proudly not wanting to be civilized and then adopting a form of spirituality that works for him, that has a kind of innate appeal. And that appeal, I would argue, was also for Sam Clements. Incontrovertibly, the superiority, the eminent good logic, the good sense of some of these Iroquois concepts to Christianity. Is that appropriative? Is it misappropriative? Oh, it's definitely, it's definitely, yes. That is something that functions kind of like the idea that Huck is not civilized, the idea that Huck and Tom play Indian, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. is that itself working to further marginalize and silence actual Native peoples. Huck is able to make himself Native at the expense Mm. of the folk who might have a better claim to the territories that he lights out for. Yeah. Something that I struggled in writing the book and tried to avoid is presentism because our lenses are always subjective and we are the product of our own time. To sort of read back into the 19th century through these notions of cultural appropriation of paramount concern to us now. So in the conclusion of my book, I quote from D.H. Lawrence's studies in American literature, where he talks about the mythical appeal of Cooper is that interracial friendship of Natty Bumpo and Chugachgook. What Cooper was really doing was dreaming the nucleus of a new society. And that new society is multicultural, multiracial. And I think that's what tantalizes me about the prospect of Huck's conversion. One of the lessons that I learned in writing that chapter, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer Among the Indians, just for your listeners, is Mark Twain's abortive attempt to write a sequel to Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And he abandoned it literally mid-sentence, about nine chapters in. And because it's unfinished and rather melodramatic at that, perhaps not one of his finest literary efforts, the few critics who've looked at that manuscript have deduced about it that this sequel dallies with or entertains in rather opaque terms the notion of rape, right? Interracial rape, gang rape of this young, virginal, white heroine. Wait, yeah. And that Twain's skittishness about sex prevented him from bringing this book to fruition. Well, and particularly when he was trying to mobilize the narrative voice of Huck that had proven Mm -hmm. so fruitful and so generative for him to try and reconcile. This is a world seen so emphatically through the way Huck uses language. Mm-hmm. Huck literally does not have the language for this. Mm-hmm. It's referenced. Like, Huck knows what has happened. He knows that right. this woman has right. been assaulted. And it is always referenced through elision. Literally, you can't put it into words. Yes. Yeah, I, I say that. I say Peggy's fate becomes literally unspeakable. And you say Huckleberry Finn's ability in our canon is under dispute. Absolutely. Actively. And yet its role in the development of American literary history is not, right? Right. The things that come from this book, from Hemingway onward, we can't wish away that legacy. We have to grapple with it. No. If Peggy's fate is unspeakable in Huck's voice, these do get at questions of what our literary tradition is and is not able to say. Mm Mm-hmm. For me, again, a a revelation was looking at that sequel through the lens of his exposure and admittedly limited understanding of Native spirituality, but nonetheless, genuine appreciation for what he thought he was finding there. That's why I think he couldn't finish it. He could not reconcile this savagery, this brutality, the bloodthirstiness, the depraved sexuality of this group of Sioux men. Just to be clear, the brutality, savagery, these are rhetorical constructs that he is absorbing as a trace through newspapers, through family stories, as opposed to 
personal experience. Right. You know, this again was one of the insights that I came to pretty early on. And that was that his association with native people was limited. (laughs) And that's, that's an understatement. I mean, they were cursory, they were superficial, they were very finitely bound within a brief period of time. He had no, virtually no firsthand experience. As we were talking about dialectic between desire and revulsion, between admiration and despair, you're saying that that is what breaks this project. Yes, yes. You said something about Native Studies scholars wondering why we should be reading Twain on this issue at all. They're concerned that by continuing to lionize an author who treats Native identity as a punchline, it perpetuates some of the worst lies America likes to tell itself. And I have been saddened by the fact that there really has been, at least to my knowledge, no response to the book from Native scholars. Although Mark Twain's reputation may be under duress these days, given the climate of our contemporary political moment, he's here to stay. All right. And one of my corollary ambitions in writing this book, and this comes directly out of my teaching experience, is that I would talk about Wounded Knee and the Battle of Little Bighorn, you know, or the government boarding schools, right? And my students would just look at me. They don't know that history. And so by delving in as deeply as I did to the Modoc War, certainly not as high profile, or the Pyramid Lake War, I think would be a really good example of that. A regional conflict that perhaps people in Nevada have some cognizance of, but not necessarily people in other parts of the country that there would be a kind of education along the way that, yes, this is a book about Mark Twain, right? But I'm trying to show aspects of our nation's 19th century history that might not be general knowledge, right? It's one thing to bring in the incredible research you've done on something like the Pyramid Lake Wars. It's another to just have as a standing assumption in your American literature classroom that you will be telling Native histories embedded into your approach of teaching the literature that you have on the table. Mm -hmm. That you can't actually teach the cultural context, the historical balance, if you're not looking at these Indigenous histories. Right. So I did certainly, over the long process of writing the book, have moments of doubt where I thought, well, you know, I am an ethnically white woman. What right do I have to address this subject? And the way I made my peace with that is that I would remind myself that this is ultimately a book about Mark Twain. It's about Mark Twain's attitudes, about Mark Twain's representations and what sort of light that might shine upon our nation as a whole, whether that's true or not. That's the story I told myself. I'm grateful to you for writing it personally, and I know many people who feel the same way. So, Well, thank you. Thank you so much. That was Carrie Driscoll and Mika Turim-Nigren. For more about this episode, including a complete bibliography, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash talkingtwain. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Steve Webb, caretaker at Quarry Farm. Mika will return next week for a discussion of Mark Twain and the Indians with Native scholars. Until then, thank you for listening.